take a line divided into two unequal parts, one to represent the visible order, the other the intelligible, and divide each part again in the same proportion, symbolizing degrees of comparative clearness or obscurity. Then, A, one of the two sections in the visible world will stand for images. By images, I mean first shadows, and then reflections in water, or in close-grained, polished surfaces, and everything of that kind, if you understand. Yes, I understand. Let the second section, B, stand for the actual things, of which the first are likenesses, the living creatures about us, and all the works of nature, or of human hands. So be it. Will you also take the proportion in which the visible world has been divided as corresponding to degrees of reality and truth, so that the likeness shall stand to the original in the same ratio as the sphere of appearances and belief to the sphere of knowledge? Certainly. Now, consider how we are to divide the part which stands for the intelligible world. There are two sections. In the first, C, the mind uses as images those actual things which themselves had images in the visible world. And it is compelled to pursue its inquiry by starting from assumptions and traveling not up to a principle but down to a conclusion. In the second, D, the mind moves in the other direction from an assumption up towards a principle which is not hypothetical, and it makes no use of the images employed in the other section, but only of forms, and conducts its inquiry solely by their means. I don't quite understand what you mean. Then we'll try again. What I've just said will help you to understand. C. You know, of course, how students of subjects like geometry and arithmetic begin by postulating odd and even numbers or the various figures, and the three kinds of angle, and other such data in each subject. These data they take as known, and having adopted them as assumptions, they don't feel called upon to give any account of them to themselves or to anyone else, but they treat them as self-evident. Then, starting from these assumptions, they go on until they arrive by a series of consistent steps at all the conclusions they set out to investigate. Yes, I know that. You also know how they make use of visible figures and discourse about them, though what they really have in mind is the originals of which these figures are images. They are not reasoning, for instance, about this particular square and diagonal which they have drawn, but about the square and the diagonal. And so, in all cases, the diagrams they draw and the models they make are actual things, which may have their shadows or images in water. But now they serve in their turn as images, while the student is seeking to behold those realities which only thought can apprehend. This, then, is the class of things that I spoke of as intelligible but with two qualifications. First, that the mind, in studying them, 
is compelled to employ assumptions. And because it cannot rise above these, does not travel upwards to a first principle. And second, that it uses as images those actual things which have images of their own in the section below them, and which in comparison with those shadows and reflections are reputed to be more palpable and valued accordingly. I understand. You mean the subject matter of geometry and of the kindred arts. D. Then by the second section of the intelligible world, you may understand me to mean that all unaided reasoning apprehends by the power of dialectic, when it treats its assumptions not as first principles, but as hypotheses in the literal sense, things laid down, like a flight of steps up which it may mount all the way to something that is not hypothetical, the first principle of all, and having grasped this, may turn back and, holding on to the consequences which depend upon it, descend at last to a conclusion, never making use of any sensible object, but only of forms, moving through forms from one to another, and ending with forms. I understand, though not perfectly, for the procedure you describe sounds like an enormous undertaking. But I see that you mean to distinguish the field of intelligible reality studied by dialectic as having a greater certainty and truth than the subject matter of the arts, as they're called, which treat their assumptions as first principles. The students of these arts are, it is true, compelled to exercise thought in contemplating objects which the senses cannot perceive. But because they start from assumptions without going back to a first principle, you do not regard them as gaining true understanding about those objects, although the objects themselves, when connected with a first principle, are intelligible. And I think you would call the state of mind of the students of geometry and other such arts not intelligence but thinking, as being something between intelligence and mere acceptance of appearances. You have understood me quite well enough. And now you may take, as corresponding to the four sections, these four states of mind. Intelligence for the highest, thinking for the second, belief for the third, and for the last, imagining. These you may arrange as the terms in a proportion, assigning to each a degree of clearness and certainty corresponding to the measure in which their objects possess truth and reality. I understand and agree with you. I will arrange them as you say. First, we must come to an understanding. Let me remind you of the distinction we drew earlier and have often drawn on other occasions between the multiplicity of things that we call good or beautiful, or whatever it may be, and, on the other hand, goodness itself, or beauty itself, and so on. Corresponding to each of these sets of many things, we postulate a single form, or real essence, as we call it. Yes, that is so. Further, the many things, we say, can be seen, but are not objects of rational thought, whereas the forms are objects of thought, but invisible. Yes, certainly. And we see things with our eyesight, just as we hear sounds with our ears, and, to speak generally, 
perceive any sensible thing with our sense faculties. Of course. Have you noticed, then, that the artificer who designed the senses has been exceptionally lavish of his materials in making the eyes able to see and their objects visible? That never occurred to me. Well, look at it this way. Hearing and sound do not stand in need of any third thing, without which the ear will not hear nor sound be heard. And I think the same is true of most, if not to say all, of the other senses. Can you think of one that does require anything of the sort? No, I cannot. But there is this need in the case of sight and its objects. You may have the power of vision in your eyes and try to use it, and color may be there in the objects, but sight will see nothing, and the colors will remain invisible in the absence of a third thing peculiarly constituted to serve this very purpose. By which you mean... Naturally, I mean what you call light. And if light is a thing of value, the sense of sight and the power of being visible are linked together by a very precious bond, such as unites no other sense with its object. No one could say that light is not a precious thing. And of all the divinities in the skies, is there one whose light, above all the rest, is responsible for making our eyes see perfectly and making objects perfectly visible? There can be no two opinions. Of course, you mean the sun. And how is sight related to this deity? Neither sight nor the eye which contains it is the sun, but of all the sense organs, it is the most sun-like. And further, the power it possesses is dispensed by the sun, like a stream flooding the eye. And again, the sun is not vision, but it is the cause of vision, and also seen by the vision it causes. Yes. It was the sun, then, that I meant when I spoke of that offspring which the good has created in the visible world to stand there in the same relation to vision and visible things as that which the good itself bears in the intelligible world to intelligence and to intelligible objects. How is that? You must explain further. You know what happens when the colors of things are no longer irradiated by the daylight, but only by the fainter luminaries of the night. When you look at them, the eyes are dim and seem almost blind as if there were no unclouded vision in them. But when you look at things on which the sun is shining, the same eyes see distinctly, and it becomes evident that they do contain the power of vision. Certainly. Apply this comparison, then, to the soul. When its gaze is fixed upon an object irradiated by truth and reality, the soul gains understanding and knowledge, and is manifestly in possession of intelligence. But when it looks towards that twilight world of things that come into existence and pass away, its sight is dim, and it has only opinions and beliefs which shift to and fro, and now it seems like a thing that has no intelligence. That is true. This, then, which gives to the objects of knowledge their truth, and to him who knows them his power of knowing, is the form or essential nature of goodness. It is the cause of knowledge and truth. And so, while you may think of it as an object of knowledge, 
you will do well to regard it as something beyond truth and knowledge, and, precious as these both are, of still higher worth. And just as in our analogy, light and vision were to be thought of as like the sun, but not identical with it, so here both knowledge and truth are to be regarded as like the good, but to identify either with the good is wrong. The good must hold a yet higher place of honor. You were giving it a position of extraordinary splendor. If it is the source of knowledge and truth, and itself surpasses them in worth, you surely cannot mean that it is pleasure. Heaven forbid! But I want to follow up our analogy still further. You will agree that the sun not only makes the things we see visible, but also brings them into existence and gives them growth and nourishment. Yet he is not the same thing as existence. And so with the objects of knowledge. These derive from the good not only their power of being known, but their very being and reality. And goodness is not the same thing as being, but even beyond being, surpassing it in dignity and power. This podcast is brought to you by TranquilityRetreat.com. the degrees in which our nature may be enlightened or unenlightened. Imagine the condition of men living in a sort of cavernous chamber underground, with an entrance open to the light and a long passage all down the cave. Here they have been from childhood, chained by the leg and also by the neck, so that they cannot move and can see only what is in front of them, because the chains will not let them turn their heads. At some distance higher up is the light of a fire burning behind them, and between the prisoners and the fire is a track with a parapet built along it, like the screen at a puppet show, which hides the performers while they show their puppets over the top. I see. Now, behind this parapet, Imagine persons carrying along various artificial objects, including figures of men and animals, in wood or stone or other materials, which project above the parapet. Naturally, some of these persons will be talking, others will be silent. It's a strange picture and a strange sort of prisoners. Like ourselves. For, in the first place, prisoners so confined would have seen nothing of themselves or of any other except the shadows thrown by the firelight on the wall of the cave facing them, would they? Not if all their lives they had been prevented from moving their heads. And they would have seen as little of the objects carried past. Of course. Now, if they could talk to one another, would they not suppose that their words referred only to those passing shadows which they saw? Necessarily. And suppose their prison had an echo from the wall facing them. When one of the people crossing behind them spoke, they could only suppose that the sound comes from the shadow passing before their eyes. No doubt. In every way, then, 
such prisoners would recognize as reality nothing but the shadows of those artificial objects. Inevitably. Now, consider what would happen if their release from the chains and the healing of their unwisdom should come about in this way. Suppose one of them were set free and forced suddenly to stand up, turn his head, and walk with eyes lifted to the light. All these movements would be painful, and he would seem to be too dazzled to make out the objects whose shadows he'd been used to seeing. What do you think he would say if someone told him that what he had formerly seen was meaningless illusion? But now, being somewhat nearer to reality and turned towards more real objects, he was getting a truer view. Suppose further that he were shown the various objects being carried by and were made to say, in reply to questions, what each of them was. Would he not be perplexed and believe the objects now shown him to be not so real as what he formerly saw? Yes, not nearly so real. And if he were forced to look at the firelight itself, would not his eyes ache so that he would try to escape and turn back to the things which he could see distinctly, convinced that they were really more clear than those other objects now being shown to him? Yes. And suppose someone were to drag him away forcibly up the steep and rugged ascent and not let him go until he had hauled him out into the sunlight. Would he not suffer pain and vexation at such treatment? And when he had come out into the light, find his eyes so full of its radiance that he could not see a single one of the things he was now told were real? Certainly, he would not see them all at once. He would need, then, to grow accustomed before he could see these things in that upper world. At first, it would be easiest to make out shadows, and then the images of men, and things reflected in water, and later on the things themselves. After that, it would be easier to watch the heavenly bodies in the sky itself by night, looking at the light of the moon and stars rather than the sun and the sun's light in the daytime. Yes, surely. Last of all, he would be able to look at the sun and contemplate its nature, not as it appears when reflected in water or any alien medium, but as it is in itself, in its own domain. No doubt. And now he would begin to draw the conclusion that it is the sun that produces the seasons and the course of the year and controls everything in the visible world, and moreover is, in a way, the cause of all that he and his companions used to see. Clearly he would come at last to that conclusion. Thank you.